Recovery Sort Of is a podcast where we discuss recovery and addiction topics from the perspective of people living in long-term recovery. This podcast does not intend to represent the views of any particular group, organization, or fellowship. The views expressed here are solely the opinion of its contributors. Be advised there may be strong language or topics of an adult nature. Recovery you. Recovery. Sort of. <laughs> and I'm Jason, a guy in long-term recovery, and that's the worst dad joke opening of all time. I'm Billy. I'm also a person in long-term recovery. He's back. I told you we were joking about the vow of silence. It didn't really <laughs> take... Uh, it was to improve my language. I gave up on that pretty quick. I thought uh, for a couple episodes back, I mentioned I might try to improve my language. I'd listened to myself a few times on here and, and was like, man, I cuss way too much. And I decided, fuck it. I'm okay with cuss. <laughs> so, so I gave up on that. That was a, a minimal effort put into that change. We have had very little cursing in two weeks now, and I'm not sure why. I mean, you weren't here last week. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so someone else gets to take credit. Right, right. Johnny gets a little credit for not cursing, but I didn't curse too much either. It's weird. I don't know what the hell's going on. Uh-huh. We better curse this one up. Yeah. <laughs> We've been officially doing this for a whole year. That's incredible. I don't, I still don't think we know what we're doing, but a whole mm-hmm. year. And it's almost like recovery in my regular life. I just show up and do my part a day at a time, or in this case, you know, one, once a week. Once a week. <laughs> Occasionally twice a week if we blow it off for some reason or have right. some scheduling conflicts. But and over time I think, wow, has it been that long? Like it's amazing. It is amazing. I, I think one of the crazy things is we started out thinking, Oh my God, recovery will never run out of topics and then you get twenty five episodes in and you're like, Fuck, what are we gonna talk about next week? <laughs> is there any more to talk about? Like if we explored all of recovery? Right. And and not to knock other recovery podcasts because there are some that are pretty good out there but i think what happens is you end up falling into a place where you just start having people come on and tell their story because that's i don't want to say easy it's not necessarily easy to get good people to tell a good story but it's definitely easier than trying to come up with topics to delve into each week it's helpful to have another voice for sure but see i can't imagine us in our format just having someone on for the sake of having someone on like it's cool to have them on to talk about a topic but if they just came on like where would we even begin we just sit here and talk about the ravens or something like i don't <laughs> right like, let's we'll see where it goes <laughs> right right i don't know that that would go where i would hope it would go but maybe it doesn't matter maybe it doesn't have to i don't know we're still figuring all this out i will say one thing for sure i realized last night i think i was thinking about today's episode and i was like the introduction and, and um, jason and the guy in long-term recovery and that was one of the most uncomfortable things to say a year ago. Like I've struggled with this ego my entire recovery journey. And so my idea of humility was tamp that ego down on purpose. Like somehow I can still outsmart this disease, right? I can just, if I say the right words and act the right ways, 
that ego doesn't really exist. I would, you know, oh, I'm still a newcomer with whatever. And I, I, I'll never say long-term recovery. That sounds like I, I've arrived or something. I guess I don't, I don't know. I've said it for 52 weeks now or something. So yeah, it gets easier. When I went and started listening to the episodes and that was so incredibly difficult in the beginning to just listen to myself, to listen to myself, make mistakes with mm. words or pronunciations or stumble through ideas. And I would be sitting there in the car by myself, you know, cringing like, oh my God, I hate myself. <laughs> it was, it was hard and, and I've gotten better at it. I think it's given me a, I'd say a sense of humility. It's humbling, but at the same time, you know, there are some things that I say or do that I'm pretty proud of, you know, that I'm glad I said or like, wow, that's pretty insightful. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there was there was definitely a time when uh, there I go. Uh, I thought, oh, we don't need to edit this. It's a normal conversation. I don't overdo the uhs and mm's and stuff. And then uh, this past week, and I just um, again, I'm going to notice everyone now this past week, I actually decided, hmm. Let me edit out some of the uhs. Like, there's quite a few, some of the you knows, you know what I means. And it was a lot of work. And so my my new thing is I'm going to try to not say uh, because that's rough, even though, you know, I can kind of pick out the little sound diagram of what it looks like now. <laughs> it's awful. There's so many of them. If I went back and edited some of our podcasts, you know, they're an hour and 45 minutes. They could probably be an hour without uh. Maybe that's why they're too long. We need to do better editing and they'd be shorter. That's, that's all it is. I, I'm pretty sure I took at least 10 minutes off of last week's episode. Just taking out the uhs. There was another one. Wow. Okay. Enough paying attention to um. So today we're going to talk about relapse. And I don't know exactly what about it, but that's where we decided to go. I think there is a lot of relapse going on. Quarantine, if that's what you still want to call what we're doing, or coronavirus, or the weird state of the world during this pandemic. I definitely, even yesterday, I mean, we had to drive. My daughters were going to a baby shower. Not for them, thank God, because they're not that age yet. You know, we stopped at Starbucks, and Starbucks has very minimal seating and these plexiglass, and you can't put your own stevia in your coffee. They have to do it for you, and it just still feels so weird. And and some places are like that, and then there's other places. Like last night, I found out that all the haunted houses are still open this year, which baffled me. I'm like, well, yeah. Starbucks is all this you know, fancy, like, preventative measures and haunted houses are like, fuck it, let's get scared and die. I, I don't know. I just don't even know if it's serious because people take it such different extremes. And But the world, no matter if you take it serious or not, the world looks very different now. It's uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable for me. Like, just walking into Starbucks yesterday was like, this just feels so fucking wrong. The earth doesn't even feel like home right now. And... I've heard of a lot of people with years or days or months or whatever relapsing during all this, and, and we've lost quite a few of them. And it's like, is that what they're feeling too? Is that everything just feels so strange and out of sorts? And how do you survive in this kind of environment or what? There's definitely a social awkwardness to going to in-person meetings. Mm -hmm. For myself, I've been to a few, and what I find I tend to do, which I don't feel... 100% great about, but 
I almost want to go back to acting like there's nothing going on and hug people and, you know, because that's what we do in our fellowship. When you see someone, you know, you give them a hug. Stranger or someone you know, it doesn't matter. See someone, you introduce yourself, you give them a hug. And I still have a tendency to want to do that. It puts me in a weird place sometimes because I'm like, well, wait a minute. I don't necessarily even know these people and what their behavior is, if they're mm-hmm. sick. I don't know anything. I'm not asking questions. Hey, have you had a fever? Right. You know, none of that. I'm just, hey, I'm Billy, you know, and, and want to give them a hug. That, you know, makes me feel uncomfortable. But then I know I've went in to give other people a hug and I can tell they're uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like all of a sudden, you know, they're like, they'll do it because it's impolite to be like, no, get away from me. Um, I'm impolite, though. Yeah, well, yeah, nowadays, that's the thing. I don't know. Maybe it's not impolite. You know, I don't take it offensively. Like, I understand when people say that. But you're, my reaction a lot of times is, like, if someone goes to hug me, I'm going to just hug them back. And then be like, oh, that might have not been the best. So there's a lot of that weirdness, you know, that makes what used to be, for a lot of people, a very comfortable place where you felt kind of loved and supported that you were around your peers you know people you looked at as brothers and sisters you know all of a sudden there's this kind of awkward i'm not exactly sure how to act or how to introduce and then if i don't want to be hugged how comfortable am i telling people that i love or that i'm close to that i don't want them to hug me you know it's just it's a lot new uncharted territory that can be difficult to work through yeah it was super hard to tell people that i wasn't hugging for a time there and not everywhere because I've definitely talked to people who have not had any meetings shut down since the beginning. They just continued right on through. But a lot of places, there was also a time where there wasn't even that. You know, there was just no meetings unless you did the online versions. And that is very nice. And it's incredible that we can do that in 2020. But it's not exact substitute for what we've dealt with in the past where we do see face to face and we do get that hug that we need and that reassurance. And I mean, some people who don't like phone calls or virtual stuff, they're not going to get down with that. I I gave it. I, I hugged some people at the last meeting I went to. I'm, I'm getting to a place where, at least right now, and, and I know that there's some possible predictions that maybe this picks up again and gets worse as the winter, you know, sets in. And if that's the case, then maybe I need to readjust my, my views. But at this point in time, I'm, I'm pretty much fucking over it. I'm just, I don't know, man. I'm just so tired of it all. And, and I understand how people got there quicker than me and i understand that there's people probably still holding on and i'm still trying to do the safe thing but at the same time it's just like man i can only live with so much of this it's like i I need to get back to some living the one thing i think i'm still not doing is like the gym like i keep hearing that that's one of the worst places and i'm like (laughs) god damn it i want to go to the gym that's like my favorite place but i I have not yet done yeah and for myself i would have (laughs) never recognized or acknowledged how important like the hugs were you know Mm -hmm. in other fellowships they do handshakes and stuff and i thought well it's just a greeting you know and we're addicts we got to do everything over the top so it can't extra yeah right it can't just be a handshake now it's got to be a hug you know and (laughs) and i would have thought it was that now i can say honestly you know when there was a time where there wasn't meetings like that hug has become meaningful you Mm -hmm. know especially for people that i haven't seen in a while like you know, I have friends. I've been around a lot of meetings in recovery for a long time. And if I go to a meeting, you know, and I see someone I haven't seen for a while, I really genuinely want to give that person a hug, you know, to to make that connection. There is something there more than just seeing you and, hey, how you doing? And, and kind of waving like there's some 
some intimacy and connection that happens in those hugs that I would have never recognized or acknowledged had I not had to go for several months without it. Yeah. And so when we when we talk about relapse, you know, our definition is kind of like picking up using again after a time of recovery. Like, is that what we assume? I, I've heard that a lot. Like people say, well, you can't just come around for two months and not do any step work and then use again. You're just continuing using. Like you just took a pause. You didn't really recover, so you can't really relapse. I, I don't know if that's just a fun thing to say that sounds fancy or is that a real sentiment? Um, I want to say that, yes. So my gut reaction is to say, yeah, you know, if you don't have any recovery, it's not really a relapse. But I don't necessarily know. I mean, that's, I would say, uh, like a our fellowship kind of thing, like a 12-step fellowship kind of thing. It's an elitist. <laughs> it's elitist. Right. So I looked up the definition. <laughs> so did I. Just, you know, right, for most things, because I always think I know what it means, but then I look it up and think, well, it's a little different than what I thought. <laughs> right. So what'd you get? Um, so I have two. This comes from Merriam-Webster. Uh, one is the act or an instance of backsliding, worsening, or subsiding, and two, a recurrence of symptoms of a disease after a period of improvement. Mm. So under either of those two cases, just someone who comes in, stops using, even for a short amount of time, could be considered, I, I don't know if I would say, I wouldn't say they're in recovery, but <laughs> if, if they stayed abstinent for a period of time and started to get some improvements in their life and then went back to using, that would be a relapse under that definition? They're just in recovery. <laughs> and then they recover. They're just in cover. Right. Uh, so the one I found was similar. It suffered deterioration after a period of improvement. Yeah, that's hard to say. Like we look at improvement as in like an improvement in spiritual condition or life being or joy or serenity. And so I can say I can stop using drugs and be miserable and not improve in that area. But if I just look at life in general, if I stop using drugs, my life improves, even if I am miserable. Right. Like it's just an improvement. I'm not killing myself regularly on a daily basis. I definitely, I think it's kind of an elitist, I've worked steps and you didn't, that's why you can't get it view to say that they haven't recovered enough to relapse. For sure. And that was part of my focus on this discussion wasn't just to look at that because it's, it's hard in the beginning, you know, a lot of our, any recovery has a low success rate, you know, it seems like it's not like any program out there can say like, oh, 75% of our people will recover this one time and get better. Like, right. it's just not, that's not a realistic statistic for addiction. What I kind of thought about more than that was, okay, so we kind of understand that people getting short amounts of time and then relapsing and then getting some short amount of times, like that's part of the recovery process. I think for me, what's more important to focus on as a person with time is how do I avoid after coming in really building a life and becoming successful in my life and, you know, working steps and, and all those things and some years in this process, how do I avoid recovery? Because I've seen those people go back out and use and it they seem way less likely to come back. Yeah, it's is that an ego thing? I'm I'm not sure. Right. I don't know. So the other the only other definition I found which was more of a, a mental health definition was it said, in the realm of addiction, relapse is a return to a substance use after a period of non-use. So that would qualify everyone for it. But I, I definitely get what you're saying about, you know, thinking about more people who come around and done some work and had some freedom and what happens. 
And I can't say that I know for sure either. So I had this happen recently with a sponsee. He's been around for, I don't know, eight or nine years. And he asked me to sponsor him. And I guess I've technically been sponsoring him the whole time. But he hasn't done a whole lot of step work. And then he'll, he'll come around. He's got a good career. And they accept him back. And he makes good money almost instantly. And then the next thing, he's got a really nice car. And he sleeps around a lot. Uh, you know, it's an ex-void filler after drugs is usually sex. Uh, and gets in these, you know, sex one-night stands or, you know, short relationships. He'll finally find the, the one. He gets a place. They move in together. And then I don't hear from him again. And he's gone. And then, you know, a year later, he comes back. And so, somewhat disheartening, he, he was working steps. He just celebrated two years. And... He finished his fourth and fifth, and I was like, cool. You know, I went to his anniversary. I'm like, look, let's go over that soon. We set up a, a Saturday in, in theory. He said, I'll call you this week. We'll set it up. I didn't hear from him. Waited a couple of weeks. I texted him. He called me. He's like, man, I'm glad you broke the ice. I forgot to call, and then it just got kind of weird where I just felt weird about calling. He's like, look, let's set it up for next Saturday this time we'll start it. And I was like, awesome. Yeah, we'll do that. So it was coming up. I didn't hear from him. And I texted him. This was not yesterday, last Saturday morning. I was like, Hey, what's up? And he's like, I'm going to step back for a while. Hmm. And it just kind of hurt. I don't know. Put me in a little bit of a funk, right? I've seen this guy come so far this time where he hasn't been able to before. And then, I mean, he, he has a house and he has the car and the job and he just moved in earthling in with him. And it's like, ah, is this the pattern all over again? Like, is this it? Nobody says that because we do that, we end up with drugs, right? What, what could happen is he could get miserable and decide to go over a step. Like a, anything can happen. It's just, it's hard to watch and know that there's really very little I can do about it at all. And for me personally, so I've sort of interpreted relapse as not, being just about using like I can fall into periods of relapse or patterns of relapse without ever picking up a drug my understanding of the disease and how it works for me in my life is you know my self-centeredness my self-obsession total dependence on self lack of trust or faith in a higher power or a power you know greater than me and I go back to running just on self-will. I do what I think because I think it's the best thing to do. And I don't really run it by anybody or challenge it against anything. You know, it's, and it's just back to me thinking I know what's best for me in my life. That tends to cause me pain. And so for me personally, that's what a relapse looks like. Mm. That could eventually end up in using. Maybe it doesn't. You know, right. but that's a relapse is when I get back to a place where I have no dependence or no, I would say, need for anything outside of myself to help me in my life. I'm in relapse. I think for me, it's interesting uh, that 10 step conversation we had was really eye opening and not that it was like new information, but just the the way it said that we worked the 10 step because today our recovery is not based entirely around pleasure. Right. And basically this concept that a lot of what we do in our lives today to further our recovery is about this is the vigilance and perseverance of what I do next. It's just what I do next. No, it doesn't feel good a lot of times, but at the end of the day, it leaves me being the man I want to be and, 
and feeling good about myself, which allows me to stay clean another day and allows me to, you know, live happy, joyous and free and not caught up in the things I didn't do and blah, blah, blah. But that's where my, you know, you describe what your relapse mode or whatever looks like. That's me. I just get caught up in living with what feels good. My all my decisions are based around what feels good next. Well, skipping doing them fucking dishes. And I know I harp on the dishes. I don't even do the dishes, right? That's not even my job in my house. But it, it just reminds me of times when I've skipped the dishes or I don't want to tend to that laundry today. I'm going to put that off and just sit here and watch TV or sit here and play a video game or sit here and scroll on my phone because that shit feels better. And that's where all my relapse mode comes in. It's in the inability to make a positive, healthy decision to do the next right thing. I just make decisions on whatever feels best right now, which is usually doing nothing. Yeah. And I will look at the fact that I make some good decisions and ignore the bad decisions that I make. And what I mean by that is so I might not be out like impulsively spending all my money and I'm paying my bills and, you know, I'm secure in that area. But I'll ignore the fact that like I'm ignoring, you know, maybe some responsibilities with the kids or some other responsibilities around the house. And, I'll, you know, just like using like I only look at I pick and choose what pieces of information I'm going to use to justify my success mm. you know, in my decision making. And I ignore all the areas where I'm causing harm. You reminded me, and, and it ties into some scenarios I've seen with some friends over time, what I would call a, a common theme amongst people that I've seen that come in and get time is, and again, I'll explain my own, I'll explain this from my own perspective. Probably some other people can relate, but, you know, come in fully invested in recovery in my first couple years. You know, it's like sponsor involved in service. I have a home group. I'm hitting multiple meetings. My whole social network is all people in recovery or majority of it. I mean, I have some relationships with my family and stuff, but majority of all my social network, everything I do is centered around recovery. And that goes, you know, for a good three or four years, I'm hardcore working steps, you know, heavily invested in the process of recovery. Slowly my life, what they call that social acceptability goes up, you know, I get a good job and I buy a house and I have a wife and a couple kids and then I'm doing good and I'm four or five years into recovery. Well, now by all measures of anything I've ever had in my life, like I'm a success, I'm doing great. You know, my life could never, this is, this is what I wanted my life to be the whole time I was using. I just wanted to be normal, you know, and here I am normal now. I'm normal and I'm working towards the future and we got a couple cars and we're taking trips and going to the beach and, you know, going to Disney World. Like, who the fuck does that shit? Right. You know, for a drug addict, like, that's dream come true. And so somewhere in that process, I'm like, well, I'm good now, you know, and I don't actively reject the program. I just have outgrown the program. I'm now grown beyond it. And so I'm going to meetings, you know, or at least I'm going to my home group each week because that's one commitment that I made. And I'm like, all right, well, I at least need to do that. So I'm going to my home group uh, most of the time with the attitude that I'm there to fucking save all of them and, and fix them and help them and give everybody some great advice. Because look at me, you know, if you look at me and all my outsides, everything's good. And the ego creeps in and then I'm in the back of the room with my buddy or, a, you know, whatever and we're cutting up and making jokes and whatever and we're just there because that's what we do and then life happens like a tragedy happens something hard happens because in this process at least for me when I turned my will and life over to God when I thought I made that decision I thought God had a part of that agreement that he was supposed to uphold too 
And that was that I wasn't supposed to suffer any tragedies now that I was doing the right things and being this good person. And sure, some bad stuff might happen, but bad stuff like I get a fucking flat tire on the way to work, you know, not like real life shit. Right. But what I can say is that just because you get clean, life still shows up. People still die. Spouses still use. People that are your sponsors or people that you sponsor will lie to you and steal from you and try to sleep with your wife and like all that shit will happen you know you're dealing with a crowd of drug addicts you know and we are all very different i mean i think it happens with earth people too you hear that show but in any case in my case it was we found out daughters got molested and when that happened i became angry and bitter with god and it's not that i thought using would make anything better but if I used, I wouldn't have to feel that way. I wouldn't have to feel as angry and hurt, and I wouldn't give a fuck is mm-hmm. basically what it boiled down to. And I thought, well, you know what? I might be okay with that. I just, I don't want to feel the way that I'm feeling now. I don't want to go through this. I don't, you know, my whole faith and trust in the program of recovery was out the window, you know, because God didn't uphold his side of the story. You know, right. he didn't he didn't uphold his end of the deal. I upheld mine. I was clean and working and had a job and paying bills and raising kids and being faithful to my wife. You know, that was all my side of the street was clean, you know. And it came down to a choice of do I want to use or do I want to resurrender to the program? And I luckily chose the latter. I came back to the program and recommitted and reassessed some things in my belief and understanding of a higher power and began a different journey with that part of my recovery. So I, I totally relate to the getting the family, the house, the career and all these things and and feeling good. And not only did the social acceptability piece happen, two other things also went into it for me. One I felt guilty leaving the house for meetings when I had the wife and a kid at home, right? Like she gets up with him at night and I'm supposed to be there to help and give her a break and be this perfect husband, which I was far from, but I I thought I was supposed to. And so I constantly talked myself out of going to meet. I can't do that. I'm supposed to be home with this family I've made and all this stuff, which there's some truth to, right? I shouldn't be in meetings seven nights a week, but I avoided what I needed to do to keep myself healthy at all. Right. And then uh, there came a point where after some bitter breakdown stuff of my own, like I realized that, Hey, I need to do these things this many nights a week in order to stay okay and be helpful when I am here and not just here and being a, a bigger problem. And on top of that, the second thing that happened was that I accomplished all these goals that I came into recovery to get, right? Like you talked about the the job, the house, the car, the, the the kids, the spouse, everything was there. And it was like, well, now, like, I don't have anything else to work towards. This is all the fuck I ever wanted. And I never even thought I'd get here. And now I'm here. Well, nobody taught me I need to establish new goals and, you know, have new ideas of things I want to work towards. So I had no purpose in life anymore. And I didn't realize, God, I don't know. It was probably... 12 years into this process before I realized that purpose in life was actually super meaningful for the recovery (laughs) process. I just, I I don't know how I missed that part, but apparently that's a huge emphasis. It's like, we need to find a purpose in our life and and reason. And 
something to get out of bed for. And without it, we're kind of lost and flailing, which is where I was for quite a long time. Yeah, and I think I was similar. I was, again, looking at all the outside social acceptability stuff instead of looking internally at, you know, what are my values? What are my beliefs? What kind of person do I want to be in my day-to-day life? You know, how am I treating the lady at the Wawa? And how am I treating, you know, the people I interact with on a daily basis? Not just look at all my outside stuff and I'm a success now. Right. (laughs) Because I could be all that outside stuff and then still be like flicking off people on the highway because they cut me off or, you know, being an asshole to the lady at the Wawa because she gave me the wrong amount of change, you know. Oh, yeah. Or keeping the excess money if someone gives me too much change, you know, walking out of the store feeling like I hit a jackpot, you know, like. If only the people listening to my great sound and share could see me break checking the fucking guy behind me on the highway. (laughs) Yeah, super spiritual. To kind of reel that back to relapse. So I think, you know, we get into those periods, all of us find ourselves for different reasons. And sometimes you mentioned something that I found important or or that I had to discover on my own is sometimes there are some really difficult things we have to balance out with recovery. You know, I value being a father very highly in my, you know, list of values and my value chart or whatever you want to call it. So showing up for my kids things is incredibly important, you know, and when you have, you know, four kids at one time we had, you know, four kids, well, we have four kids just one time they were all living at home you know, you're trying to balance out, you know, this one's got this sport going on, that one's got that thing, this one's got gymnastics on Tuesdays. And for me personally, as a parent, I didn't want to miss any of that stuff. I went to all of it because it was important for me. Like, I felt like I wanted to be there to show my kids that I loved and supported them. It became easier to justify not fitting in meetings because this is all the stuff that you guys told me I was supposed to be, you know, like I'm supposed to be a good parent, a loving father. I'm supposed to be giving of my time to others, you know, and all this stuff. Somewhere in there, we have to learn some discernment. And I think that's where connections with people in recovery, again, connections to people outside of myself, powers greater than me, other advice from other people, other than me and my best thinking can help with that stuff. If I'm talking to a sponsor or, or in my case, you know, my wife is very involved in recovery. So she's a good source of information. You know, it's like, when's the last time you've been to a meeting? Fuck, it could easily turn into two or three weeks sometimes. Not intentionally. It wasn't like I had no intention to avoid meetings. I wasn't like, I did. if you'd asked me intellectually, I wouldn't have said, oh, I don't need that shit. I'd have been like, oh no, that's really important. My recovery's vital to my life it's interesting even without like i I can remember during those times i was referring to not so much having that outside input you know call my sponsor here and there just to say hi and talk about you know his job and my job and some surfacey stuff but even even my wife who's not in the program you know recognizes stuff like she had the good information i needed I just had no ability to listen, right? I still knew everything. And she would say things like, you know, you realize you can go there. It's just a practice tonight. You can go to a meeting. It's not a big deal. I'll just take the kids and we'll have a good time and you can hit a meeting or, you know, hey, it doesn't really do any good for you to stay home from the meeting. 
and not hang out with your kids at all anyway. Like, that's kind right. of pointless. And I was like, ah, whatever. You don't know what you're talking about. Like, you don't understand the program. Like, she probably had a way better understanding of what I needed than I did. I just couldn't hear any of that shit. So let's pause here before we get uh, any further into discussion. We'll do our voices ahead and be right back. This episode has been brought to you by Voices of Hope, Inc., a nonprofit grassroots recovery community organization located in Maryland. Voices of Hope is made up of people in recovery, family members, and allies. Together, members strive to protect the dignity and respect of those that use drugs and those in recovery by advocating for treatment, support resources, and mentoring. Please visit us at www.voicesofhopececilmd.org and consider donating to our cause. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So we talk about this idea, right? And and I've, I don't know, maybe 50... 80, 100, I have no idea how many dudes have asked me to sponsor them over the course of my recovery, right? It's been quite a few. And anybody who's been asked to sponsor, you know, more than 10 people probably knows this already. But generally, there's a bunch that will get your number and never call you. And then there's a good amount that will call you a couple times and see you at a couple meetings and then never call you again. And you might see them for a few more meetings and then they fall off. Then there's one to start the step work and maybe get a step or two down and then they fall off. Like there's this spectrum of how much people are willing to do or how long they're going to stay. And fortunately, like I've definitely had sponsees that are now past. They're not here anymore with us and that's awful. And then you have guys that start off all gung ho and they're three steps in and they're like super, you know, they're, they're recovering addict of the year right? Like rookie of the year, uh, recovery guy. And then they stop, like, you're just sure that they're going to stay clean forever. And then they end up using a year and a half in, and then there's guys who do nothing at first. And then two years in decide they want to start working steps. And then they're like pretty healthy. And I just, I guess I feel like we really just have no idea. And I've put that judgment on so many people of, oh, they're going to make it. They're not going to make it. And it, there's some accuracy to it, right? You can kind of tell some things about people's behavior when they get here, or if they're ready, what we call ready. And that's, I think that ready idea is something that I'm curious about because we, we just don't know. And we, we sort of say this, it's like our NA belief, I guess, at least my belief, like people get it when they're ready or after they've hit their real bottom, that's when they'll not use again. And I like, we don't have any real idea of when that is or if it's ever happened already and then we say we're each other's eyes and ears but people don't seem to really listen when they're in the denial of a relapse mode so i don't know how that really helps or if we can truly stop people and so i I don't know i just feel like we're so defenseless against it and and basically we've decided and i don't know that this is wrong but basically we've decided to just say oh it's completely out of our control and it it could just be an excuse. Maybe there is something we could do, or maybe there's not, but that's what we, we just, you know, oh, we don't know. We can't control it. We're just here when they're ready. Yeah. 
Wow. So over the years, I have given up on trying to figure out what, and I don't even know if I'm going to be here a month from now. So fuck if I know what anyone else is going to do. <laughs> and, uh, because I, I've learned, I don't, I don't know what takes people out. You know, I, I don't know what a sincere desire looks like. And I can have a really sincere desire today, but next week some tragic thing could happen and that desire is gone. You know, I, it's just the way that life's work. I've seen people that I love use and given up on that idea that, oh, once they use, there's nothing we can do. You know, and you cross them off the list. So, so early in recovery, I had a, you know, they give you a phone book or they used to give you a little blue phone book and you would write the numbers of people that met in recovery in that phone book. And I carried it around for a long time and I would go through and like I actually had a red marker where I had X'd out the names of people that didn't come around anymore or that mm -hmm. used that I knew used because I'm like, oh, I can't call those people. You know what I mean? Like they use, they'll take me out before I can save them. Um, so early in my recovery, it was like a self-preservation thing. I don't, I shouldn't be reaching out to try to save people because I'm in no position to save people. Now in my recovery, if it's people that I love and I know they're drifting away or or are even using, I'll call them. Not, I mean, I don't try to hang out with them. It's not like I want to go meet them at the fucking bar and hang out and have drinks, you know, nothing like that. But I reach out to them. I call them every now and again. I had a sponsor I was super close with that had 17 years clean. I call him once or twice a year. Hey, how's it going, man? I haven't seen you in a while. Just, you know, want to catch up, see how things are going. Just to let them know that I love them and care about them, whether he's using or not. You know what I mean? That relationship went beyond, you're just an NA friend, and if you're not in NA, I have no time for you. Right. Um, there's not many of those people in my life. There's probably two, three that are people that I've talked to over the years that use, and, and it's weird. I don't, again, I don't feel like it's my place to try to talk them into coming back. It's just a matter of letting them know, like, hey, you are loved and you are cared about, and if you decide this is something you want to do, I'll help you in any way that I can. The last thing I'll say about that is, fortunately or unfortunately, like this version of recovery, at least what we're in through, you know, Narcotics Anonymous, like it's not for everyone. Not everyone's going to come here and find what they need to keep themselves clean. They might come keep looking here, but it doesn't mean it's ever going to work for them for whatever reason. Maybe they have a hang-up. Maybe there's something in the program that doesn't work for certain kinds of people with different kinds of whatever. But this, there's other ways of recovering that may work better for them that if they explored some other avenues and didn't get stuck with the idea that this was the only way to do it, maybe they go out and explore something else and find that that's what they need. It is interesting that we always say the program doesn't fail. It's the people who don't work the program. Like we have so many quotes and, and sayings and meetings about, oh, the program is perfect. You know, it's the fellowship falls short or the people fall short. That's why they use or you know, if you don't work a fourth step, we've seen these people frequently use or like we have all these cliches around that. But yeah, maybe our view is limited. Maybe it's not the only thing and maybe it doesn't work for some people. Well, I was always told the very first thing in the program is don't use no matter what. So if you don't use no matter what a day um, at a time, then 
<laughs> you know, to to me, that's like one of those sayings. Like you say it, but it's like, eh. yeah. <laughs> like it doesn't really mean much because yeah, if I'm living the program, I'm not using. That's the very first thing of the program, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. And, yeah, that's you know, don't give up five minutes before the miracle. And there's another one we have to. There's so many that just yeah, they're very okay. All right, sure. That sounds great. But (laughs) what are we actually going to do to help people not use, right? So one of the quotes, one of the first ones we hear at almost every meeting, thinking of alcohol as different than other drugs has caused a great many addicts to relapse. And that is great in our how it works reading. I think a lot of people in NA, do they still? Like, I I I was going to say, I I think that's an old school thinking, but I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, I I definitely used it. Unfortunately, I used thinking alcohol was different and learned the hard way that that didn't work for me. But I don't know if people like I think we're kind of knowledgeable that alcohol is not any different than drugs. Maybe not, though. Maybe not, because I look online and there's a lot of glorification of alcohol. I think we still look at it as like the perfect American party or relaxation. It's pretty sick. Yeah, I'd say that and prescription medications both i guess from a social acceptability point of view are much more socially acceptable so i can see and and i say that i didn't do that but the truth is i did i part of my story was i used you know heroin for years i got locked up went to jail for a year i stopped using heroin when i because i had to go through horrible withdrawals so when i got out of jail i didn't use heroin again but i drank and smoked pot for four years because i thought if i just do these things i'll be fine it's the heroin and the coke and the heavy drugs that are my problem right and then my life wasn't any better and it was still a disaster (laughs) just with alcohol and other drugs and i haven't i haven't done heroin you know i didn't do heroin again but it didn't matter so i guess before I came to NA, I had exactly that point of view that I could drink successfully and that would be fine. <laughs> I will say my alcohol use is not, there's not a lot of it to go by. It's a small sample size, but it was ugly every <laughs> last time. Like it was like piss yourself blackout drunk every time. There was never something shorter than that. I definitely woke up the next day not remembering every last time. So. <laughs> I think it's pretty safe to say that I can't use alcohol. Uh, One of the things I did find interesting, I put on Twitter and asked if people found it different. Like, dude, I just assume because I'm self-centered that everyone in NA thinks like me and that NA relapses are somehow more urgent or dire situations than AA relapses. Like I get fundamentally the same thing happened. I get over time, Alcohol actually kills more people than drugs does, for sure, uh, because it's socially legal and acceptable and, you know, all the tied-in consequences to it of, of body part failures and everything. But I just, I guess, assumed that it was universal knowledge and agreement that you could die from a drug overdose tonight. And if you relapse on alcohol, yeah, some things could happen. You could drive drunk and die, I guess, but you could drive sober and die. So that doesn't really like that doesn't seem urgent, like the the drug addict relapse. And on Twitter, there was a myriad of opinions. But I will say this, the general overall sentiment, there was a few people that were like, let's stop comparing. I'm like, oh, my God, really? I'm not trying to compare these or make one worse than the other. I'm just trying to see what people think. And, And it seemed like People in AA do not share that opinion at all, which I guess kind of makes sense. You don't want to belittle your own program's relapse, right? But 
they were like, no, this is just as serious here. And, and I don't know. I, do you have any thoughts about that? I, I, it might not even be the N.A. stance. It might just be my stance. Well, yeah, and I was going to just say, I think, and I'm guessing here because we didn't actually have this conversation, but I'm assuming you're referring more to, like, the heroin epidemic and, and how – yeah. You know, but heroin isn't the only people, only reason people come to N.A. It's you know, not, people come with whatever. Well, I had, I had Coke, and I think my heart busting is even worse than <laughs> right. you know, the heroin movie. So I, I don't know. I, I get it, though. You're right. Yeah, I don't know that I've, I've ever really thought about one being worse than another. I mean, not so much worse, just it seemed more urgent. Like the AA guy who drank tonight, I've always just assumed, and I guess my brain is changing as I've read these Twitter comments, but I'm like, well, you know, maybe we can get him back in a meeting next week, right? But like the guy who went out and shot heroin tonight, I'm like, fuck, we got to get him into a meeting tomorrow, right? Mm -hmm. He needs something now. Like that AA guy, like, eh, he's going to drink some beers this week. And, And hey, that's my belittling of our disease, I guess. That's my own short sightedness. Huh. Now, I don't know that I think there's any, I mean, all of it's urgent, you know, to me, I, I just, I've never really looked at it differently. I don't know why. Well, and that's the great thing about this past year is that I have learned and been able to change my opinion on so many things, like really solidifying my opinion on specialty meetings. That episode completely changed my brain on that one. And obviously like this, I've just learned, you know, that it's not universal to think of one as worse than the other. And they're all pretty goddamn serious. And that's what I've loved about doing this podcast for the last year is that I'm able to learn and grow with this new information instead of just rejecting on it all and being like, nah, y'all are crazy. I'm, I'm right over here. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe, you know, even, and, and I don't know if this doesn't really matter, but it's just funny to think that funny is probably the worst thing I could have said. <laughs> Another way to think about this was an alcohol related, like let's say someone, you know, relapses and goes out and drives. Well, their likelihood of killing other people is a lot mm. higher than the heroin addict who, you know, may just overdose and die themselves, you know. So you may have way more tragic consequences, you know, to alcohol related. It's uh, just different ways of thinking about it, different ways of looking yeah, at it. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. The consequences can be devastating. So the next quote that I had pulled out is out of Recovery and Relapse, and it says, After a member has had some involvement in our fellowship, a relapse may be the jarring experience that brings about a more rigorous application of the program. And then it says, There may be times when a relapse lays the groundwork for complete freedom. And so as people who we look at relapse as a terrible failure frequently, it's hard to when your life is on the line, it's hard to see that that might have been part of the process, right? I've definitely heard differing opinions with people sharing meetings of relapse doesn't have to be part of recovery or it's not a part of recovery. Or I, I do think relapse does have a lesson in it if we're able to make it back. Hopefully, yeah, we can see we're only, at least my understanding of, of this process of recovery is we're only given a daily reprieve from our addiction and that I need to keep up and it ties back to the 10th step like i need to keep up with a a a daily vigilant application of these principles if i want to continue to experience ongoing recovery and if i get out of that mode i'll go from recovery sort of back to like an abstinence level so I, i would look at it as recovery is when i'm in a state of like improving my spirit improving my life making active you know changes to be a better person 
abstinence is where I'm clean, I'm not using, but I'm probably not doing a lot to work on myself or change very much, and then active using. And it's like those are the steps in between. <laughs> so if I'm staying, you know, in a daily application of these principles, then I'm actively engaged in recovery versus, well, I'm just abstinent and running on my own self-will for a while. Yeah, the the riding the bicycle up the hill analogy, right? When we stop pedaling, we're not just sitting still. And that's what I think I forget so frequently is like, I want to coast for a while, but you only coast so much going uphill after you pedaled. Yeah. So that, and they talk about it in a, you know, some of our literature, it's like that recovery. I mean, the relapse is like a process that we go through. I actually heard someone recently share that they didn't like that we kind of minimize relapse in some of our readings. They had recently lost a loved one and had shared that, you know, they thought it was our version that it talks about, you know, relapse can be this good thing for people, puts this positive spin on it, and they just didn't appreciate that very much in their current position, knowing that they just lost someone that they love and tell them, hey, it's okay if you relapse. We love you when you come back. Like, no, relapse is a serious thing. You know, people fucking die and not everybody makes it back. And, you know, it's it's hard. So relapse is dangerous, right? It puts us in a dangerous situation. And I don't argue that at all. I would say, and of course, I could never possibly know the truth about this, but I would say I don't know that I could have gotten the humility I needed without my relapse forever ago when it happened. But I it, it happened and I needed it to get that charring experience and that knowledge and that lesson of what I was lacking and missing in my program. But I, I, I'm really, I can understand anybody's frustration with the way we talk about relapse if they've just lost someone because they have a lot of emotions right now and they're hurt and they don't like, but I guess one of the things that sticks out to me is that we look at staying in recovery as the solution for not dying. And that's kind of ridiculous. We're like, oh, you know, it's so serious. We need to keep people in here because if you relapse, you, you can die without relapsing. Like that's tragedy happens, unfortunately, to, to all of us. And unfortunately, one of the things that I'm struggling to accept is that we all die. I don't know. It kind of there's something about it that rubs me when people are like, oh, we got to keep people from relapsing because it's, you know, it's deadly. And I'm like, well, so's walking out of your fucking front door. That doesn't mean we stop doing it. I don't know. It's just something about that. Do you have any take on that? From an optimistic point of view, I would say the only upside to keeping people in recovery, you know, yes, everyone could die and I could go die tomorrow. But if I looked at my life over the last five or 10 years, like hopefully I've left some positive imprint on my kids and my family and people that I've interacted with. Whereas if I was in active addiction the last five years and then just died, there's a lot of unresolved harm there with my children. There's a lot of unresolved harm with my family and they have to go on living with that harm. You know, they have to go on with these unresolved issues. I, so I'm not trying to be crude or, or, or belittle anyone who's lost a family member. It's tragic. It is sad. Unfortunately, my brain at times likes to dwell and think about the possibilities for my kids. And, and it's overwhelming to even think about, much less to be in the situation dealing with it. And so I'm not trying to take anything away from them. I guess from my point, it's we like to point fingers and blame and stuff. And, and so when you're in a hurt position by a particular topic, you're going to say, oh, well, it's your acceptance of relapse that makes it 
the problem, right? We can't be okay with that. Look, I've watched people in recovery that lost kids that had nothing to do with it. They didn't blame the program's language of relapse. The problem is it's fucking tragic. Like it had nothing to do with our program's language or or with the fact that relapse is at times part of people's lives or that we don't know when people are ready to get it. So I just, I don't know, whenever anybody criticizes like, oh, you need to stay clean so that you can live, that just, I'm like, that's fallacy. Like we, that's not really how it goes. I, I get that relapse is dangerous, unfortunately, but there's a lot of like, we, that's not. So if you heard of an example, and this is coming from someone in recovery, whether we have quote unquote treatment for addiction or not. So if you heard of someone that died of a condition nowadays, that's very treatable with common medications or something, let's say, you know, someone who's diabetic who just needs to eat a little bit better and take their insulin and that person decides to deny treatment and go out and just i'm just gonna eat fucking cake and hot dogs and i don't care and then they die doesn't that seem a little more tragic than a person that could have came and just taken some simple steps of treatment and, and continued to live like i guess that's kind of the yeah, difference it's like would you want to go tell that person who's eating cakes and hot dogs? You know, fuck it, man. Forget about diabetes. Just live your life and do your thing. And <laughs> That's kind of what they're choosing, though. That's right. kind of like the person who decides I want to smoke instead of... Right, but is it is it good to support them in that? Or is it... And I think we can do... We can not support them in a loving and caring way. You can still tell them, hey, this probably isn't the best thing for you to be doing. You know what I mean? This isn't a smart decision. I mean, I'm not. So I watched it with my mom. She had COPD. She was dying, literally, you know, dying and still smoking cigarettes. She was wheeling herself out back with an oxygen tank. She actually caught her oxygen and shit on fire one time trying to smoke. And watching that in the beginning... She went through this process for like 10 years. It was a long time when they first diagnosed her and told her, look, you can quit smoking and you can extend your life and buy some time and maybe continue to have decent quality of life over time. And so she quit smoking for like two years and actually got better. She actually got off of oxygen and then at some point said, fuck it, I'm going to smoke. I'm going to die anyway. I'm going to smoke. So then she went back to smoking. And it was hard not to be angry about that. It was hard not to go to her and say, what the fuck is wrong with you? Why are you doing this? You're killing yourself, but you're also, you know, you're hurting your family, your husband, you know, your children, your grandchildren. Like, how fucking selfish are you to do this? That's how I felt. That's a th I didn't say that to her. Maybe I should have. I don't, I don't know. I didn't. I don't know that I regret not saying those things because I don't know that it would have changed anything. But super interesting yeah. from like a therapy perspective, right? And so we we will work with individuals who want to live their lives the way they want to live their lives. And our goal is always we're here to help you live your best life, not the life your family thinks you're supposed to live. You're not here to live for them. You get one life. It's for you. Do it how you want, right? Whatever that means, whatever brings you joy. And so... It, it hurt me to hear you say that, right? Because I understand the sentiment of it. And and I'm sorry that your mother chose that over being here to have more time with you. And yet at the same time, I could see from the, like, if I, if somebody was her therapist thinking, how selfish are your fucking family to think that you're supposed to be here for them? Like, this is your life. If you want to smoke, smoke. And I'm not saying support it, right? I'm not right. saying support 
a relapse. But for family members to think that there's the flaw in in our take on it, like what else are we going to do? Because I'll be honest, I'm not a believer that there's a fuck ton we can do about relapse, honestly. And you mentioned the person where who has the steps they could take or the medicine they could take and chooses not to. I don't think we have any proven addiction medicine that fucking fixes no. this. I think people get high until they're done. I don't know that maybe there's a, a level of trauma we're not looking at in the treatment aspect of it, which I think we're starting to come around to. Maybe that helps. Uh, kind of like the, the, the lady Sarah said last week, like, I'm not so sure there is a prevention or, or a fix for this. And so as much as I, I hate the thought of it happening to a loved one, that's my shit, right? Like, that's for me to come to terms with because that's life. We lose loved ones and we find ways to deal with our own life and come to grips with it. And I'm not trying to be cold or callous to it, but that's not for other people to fix. There's no fix in it. The world happens and we need to figure out how to be okay with that, I guess. Yeah. And I feel again, like a dick saying all this. Oh, no, it's... There's not a, a one size right way to life for any of this stuff. You know what I mean? It's it's each individual's journey going through life. You know, obviously there's people that I love and care about that I would want to see make different choices all the time. You know? right. <laughs> but they sometimes have to go through and experience their own pain. I can say, though, I have been to funerals of people that have died clean, and I've been to funerals of people that are died using, and it's a very different feel. There's a very different attitude. There's a very different, you know, celebration of the person's life, right? whether they've been clean or whether they've been using. And maybe that's not the best way to look at it, but that's there's definitely a different feeling. If you've been to a funeral of someone who's overdosed and died, it's usually pretty rough. <laughs> there's a lot of unresolved pain and there's a lot of hurt just went to one two months ago with my my daughter's mother like yeah, the, yeah. i get it i i don't know though in the end they're not there and maybe from the therapy perspective that's a wrong way to look at it you know maybe we need to stop treating people that decided to live their lives the way they wanted to live them as tragedies well i think it's tragic for those who are here regardless right either way you're still left with the loss of that individual whether they were right. clean or using like it's still sad and you you don't get to call them next week and you don't get to see them at a meeting or whatever it is however you interacted with them you don't get to have a christmas like it's tragic no matter what clean or not it's just a matter of i think that personally for at least from my limited experience that has more to do with who they've surrounded themselves with and the relationships they've had with them recently. Like if you're clean, you generally are surrounded by clean people. You're having pretty open, honest discussions. You're having connected attachments to people. If you're using, you're really disconnected. And so that's the feeling you leave on. The people you are connected with are people you got high with. And everybody that, you know, has some positive stuff going on, you're just disconnected from that. So that kind of leaves an empty vibe and, and uh, i know we're way off recovery and relapse but i would i would think too it has something to do with are you living really living the life you truly wanted to live you know in recovery hopefully i'm experiencing you know and, and figuring out what my values and beliefs are and i'm living you know the best version of myself hopefully that's idealistic but hopefully you know i'm living a life that i've chosen to live whereas in addiction a lot of times you know, we're living lives where we've turned our will and our life over to this destructive power that we kind of are doing a lot of things we don't want to be doing. Yeah. So we, I don't 
know that there's a way to prevent relapse or stop relapse or any of that. But we will talk a little bit, uh, some of the quotes in our literature that say what we can do or, or, or don't do. So in step 12, it talks about most of us realize that the only way that we can keep what was given to us is by sharing this new gift of life with the still suffering addict. This is our best insurance against relapse. I guess that works, but that confuses me. And this has kind of my, been my argument against people leaving NA. I'm like, well, if you leave NA, you're not really working the 12 step, right? Did you ever really work the 12 steps if you don't stay? But that's not true. People can help the still suffering addict outside of NA or just help people outside of NA. And so I don't know. We, is that the goal? Is that the prevention of relapse, being able to show up and give it away? I mean, we, we do hear that people who relapse frequently stop coming to meetings first. <sighs> so I'm not a 100% believer that, like, if I'm in NA, this is just what I have to do with the rest of my life in order to be successful. I, I think that people can outgrow recovery you know, and need to go outside of here to look for spiritual growth, spiritual development, you know, whatever they might be looking for in their lives. I think this is, for me, still a place that works in my life after all this time because I still have issues that I need to work on that I believe the steps can address and that I believe I find beneficial. Funny enough, I don't get asked to sponsor a lot of newcomer people most guys that ask me to sponsor them have time have been around a while so i guess technically that's helping this like i still try to stay of service in different ways i show up at my home group i you know i'm willing to sponsor people if they ask me but it's like i'm not out trying to recruit newcomers so that i can feel like i'm helping to still suffer an addict right (laughs) you know so there's a loose understanding of what that could mean yeah, I think the still suffering addict is anybody that's still suffering, which I, <laughs> applies to all of us, really. Right, like, applies to all of us at any one time. And that's a pretty vague, like, what's it mean to be helping the still suffering addict? Like, say, there's plenty of people get into, like, it seems like treatment work or the treatment field, and they kind of disappear from meetings and recovery for different reasons. They are very split. There's, like, a, half of them thrive and love the fact that they get back and the other half get burnt out yeah. and are done with all recovery aspects. And it's yeah. so weird. It's yeah. so weird to see that down the middle. And I don't know what makes it one. It scared me away from it early on. I had just seen a couple of people that I really loved and appreciated that got involved in that recovery world. And then for different reasons, they just drifted right away from recovery. Right. And I guess once it becomes a job, it's like, Anyway, it does change it. Well, so, okay, so that said, you got to give it away to keep it, basically. And you got to give away recovery if you want to keep it. Our experience reveals that working the steps is our best guarantee against relapse. Now, that's interesting. So, in step 12, it says give it away to keep it. That's the best insurance against relapse. And then a chapter later in What Can I Do? It says our experience reveals that working the steps is our best guarantee against relapse. So, interesting little disagreement in its own literature. Yeah, well, I guess if you're working step 12, you're giving it away and you're... I guess. (laughs) But I've always heard we've never seen a person working our program perfectly relapse or something like that, which I don't even know what the fuck that means, honestly, because I can remember, I mean, I was hitting six meetings a week. I had a sponsor, had a service commitment, was doing H&I. I had all the things that supposedly would be working a program. I was writing steps. 
and I used. Do I make that not true? Yeah, we have never seen a person who lives the Narcotics Anonymous program relapse. I guess I wasn't living it. Like, I don't get it. What was I doing wrong? I mean, I can tell you what I was doing wrong, but (laughs) from an outside standpoint, I want to know what I was doing wrong. So it gets back to, again, for me personally, what I believe addiction is. And I believe that addiction is a, a, a spiritual disease, a spiritual condition, a lack of connection to other people, total self-centeredness, you know, in Mm. my thinking and in my spirit. And so for myself personally, this process of the steps and recovery helps me to get outside of myself to learn about myself enough to recognize how my decisions and actions and things that I do impact other people. And if I'm really growing to actually think about how the decisions and actions that I have impact people before I actually do them. That process of like giving it away to keep it or what I would call service to others is like the polar opposite or the antithesis of my self-centeredness. You know what I mean? If I'm thinking about other people and giving selflessly to others, that's the opposite of my addict state, which is total self-centeredness and total self-serving. So, you know, however I need to reach that place where I am not stuck in a self-centered mind, you know, that's what's going to help me to not use, to not relapse. I can't argue with that. You should have saved that for like three more quotes so that we could be done and and wrapped (laughs) up on that because I think that's, I think that's the solution for my problem. At least my problem is me. I'm stuck in my head with my thoughts about me and how everything affects me. And the solution is to not be there, right? right? It's to be about how can I help others? How can I be of service? We talk about service. And so, again, I don't even think that it's just NA or just the steps that can help me get there. Just for me now in my life, like this is a place that I like being. I like the program, what it stands for, what it's about. I can relate to the people there because of my struggles with addiction. And it's the process of the steps. While it is some work that I hate fucking writing and doing homework, Mm -hmm. you know, the process itself works for me. It's been continually beneficial to engage in this process. Service is the solution. And and I don't, I guess for me, at least I, that's what I'm thinking right now. Just service is the answer for pretty much all my problems. Right. Like if I'm just helping other people, God damn it, I feel good about me and life goes well. Relapse is never an accident. I thought that was an interesting mm-hmm. statement. Relapse is never an accident. I, that reminds me, I don't know. I was in construction and we had a company and their safety slogan was like, every accident is preventable. And, and it just always bugged the fuck out of me because by definition, accidents are not preventable. <laughs> like, yeah, you can think ahead and try to avoid some possible pitfalls, but an accident by definition was the unexpected one. Yeah. And so that's not <laughs> right. true. It just annoyed me. But I get where they were coming from. But relapse is never an accident. So what does that mean? We purposely did it? No one ever fell on a loaded heroin needle. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I it didn't know. rain crack pipes and <laughs> one fell in my mouth and I had a lighter by accident. Uh, if we begin to avoid our new responsibilities by missing meetings, neglecting 12-step work, or not getting involved, our program stops. 
these are the kind of things that lead to relapse. So I thought that was pretty evident. Missing meetings, neglecting 12-step work, not getting involved. It is not shameful to relapse. The shame is in not coming back. Multiple, oh, this was an interesting one. Multiple relapses do not necessarily signify a lack of interest in recovery, nor does the model newcomer demonstrate, without a doubt, a certainty of making it. I didn't think I wrote that down, but I did. And so that's, I mean, yeah, we, we never know who is going to get this or what one person's actions today actually lead to down the line. And so I guess just to kind of wrap that stuff up, what, what is it like? What, is it the, is it the ego? Is it not working steps? Is it not doing meetings? Is there, what is it that really leads to that relapse? Is it just total self-centeredness? Is it pleasure seeking? Like, is there any one thing or is it the combination of all these or, yeah, well, a combination of all those or any one at any given time. It's just like the almost what I would say the perfect storm of recovery. Like some people got to have the exact things in a right way that are really going to promote and support their recovery. And what I mean by that is, you know, they may need to go into like a long-term treatment center, a long-term treatment facility versus a short-term treatment facility, you know, or maybe their life situation, they can't go into an inpatient treatment facility, so they find some kind of outpatient program that's exactly what they need to encourage them but let them, you know, live their life. I mean, these are things that we're individuals, you know, each one of us. So right. what we need and what our tolerance for pain is is different. Again, for me, I found myself at a time in my life where I was at my most emotional pain Using seemed like it could be an option. That's probably the only time in my recovery that I've ever thought using, you know, might be okay. Because it was always obvious to me, like, getting high will wreck my life. There isn't any way that I think I could use and be productive and, and be the type of person that I am. That's just my history of using. I know that I would wreck my life if I use. There have been times where that doesn't seem like it's that big a fucking deal. Mm. You know, that... You know, because of the emotional pain that I felt inside, I don't give a shit if I wreck my life at this point. You know, it doesn't really matter that much. I would say just my final thought on the topic personally is if you relapsed, please keep trying. Right. Like I know we say keep coming back, but that that is kind of narrow sighted to think that we're the solution for everyone. I would just say just keep trying something. If that's not where you want to be keep trying something because maybe something can work. And I tend to believe that the victory is in trying, right? That's all of life. We, we keep trying. Sometimes we fall short. Sometimes we don't, but I think the victory is the fact that we care enough and that we keep trying to be better people, whatever that means. And if that means MATs, if that means some sort of recovery program, if that means church, if that means moving into the fucking woods in a whatever, right? Whatever it takes, man, keep trying shit until you find what works for you. And, and you can live the life that you're looking to live and, and truly find freedom. Yeah, I totally agree. I was just thinking the old spaghetti analogy where you throw a bunch of spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks, you know, it's, it's that kind of thing. There's not a one size fits all to what, what we're looking for, what recovery is, or, or what we're doing. Find what works for you, you know, keep looking until something feels good. So with all that, we will end here today and we'll look forward to seeing you next week. Keep praying, reaching out to people, doing our best. Maybe one day we'll solve relapse and have better methods for treating this problem we suffer with. 
We hope that's in the near future. And until then, we'll see you next week. If you enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to share it with people you think might benefit from the conversation. Look us up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to join the conversation also and share your ideas with us. We'd love to hear it.